Welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and today I'm joined by political reporter colleagues across the P&J, Courier and Sunday Post to digest the latest hot topics affecting communities beyond the parliamentary bubble. This week, we're speaking to P&J investigations journalist Dale Haslam, who has been working for months on a great new true crime podcast out now about Arlene Fraser, who went missing from home in Elgin 25 years ago and hasn't been seen since. We'll also discuss First Minister Hamza Yousaf's trip to COP28, the latest climate change gathering in oil-rich Dubai, and what it might mean for us here and around the world. And we'll get to grips with something destined to be a big talking point all over Scotland, the incoming ban on parking on some pavements. We'll hear from people in Dundee about how the plan is being received. First, I'm pleased to welcome Dale to the Stushy for a bit of cross-podcast chat on a fascinating series called Vanished, the Arlene Fraser Murder, which we have, of course, been covering as a story for, for more than two decades now. Welcome, Dale. Tell us, what can we expect from this series? From this series, uh, well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that many among the Stushy's audience will already know of the tragic tale of Arlene Fraser, who was a 33-year-old mum of two from Elgin. She went missing from her home in 1998, which is 25 years ago, and has not been seen since. And her disappearance sparked the largest missing persons investigation in Scottish history. However, within a few months, detectives announced that they were treating the case as a murder inquiry. From start to finish, the case has had many twists and turns, and now Arlene's family want Holyrood leaders to make an important change to the law. And that's all covered in this six-part podcast series. Well, you mentioned Holyrood and, and twists and turns there, and there's always a lot of that going on in Parliament. Without giving too much away and, and spoiling the podcast, what first is the central aspect of the case? Well, I spent four months or so looking into the events of 25 years ago, and I spoke with Arlene's two closest friends, as well as the key detective in the case, and also the prosecutor at the heart of it all. The central aspect was that there was a 50-minute window on which everything rested. This was the period of time between which Arlene last spoke to someone and when her best friend called at the house to find nobody there. It was during that window that something must have happened to Arlene, but the neighbours, who usually notice the slightest sound on the street, didn't notice anything unusual around that time, and that baffled police. And that was very much the central aspect of this case. Yeah, um, and there have been many twists and turns since then. A, a legal drama. Arlene's husband, Nat Fraser, he was found guilty of the murder and jailed for 17 years. But what what made that so unusual? Well, what made that verdict so unusual was that Arlene's body to this day has never been found. And as part of the podcast series, I spoke with Alex Prentice Casey, who prosecuted Nat Fraser. Some of you will know that Mr. Prentice is one of, if not the most prominent lawyers in Scotland. He told me how securing a conviction without a body poses unique challenges because you can't rely on things like DNA evidence and you don't have a crime scene. But the evidence he did present to the jury proved that Nat Fraser was the only person to gain anything from Arlene's death. By coincidence, around the same time Nat Fraser was on trial, Mr. Prentice successfully prosecuted a man named David Gilroy, who murdered Edinburgh woman Suzanne Pilly. And like Arlene, Suzanne's body has never been found. I, re- I remember that case as well, uh, very clearly, to police everywhere, to Argyle and Edinburgh and all in between. But yeah, as you mentioned, like Arlene, Suzanne's body was never found. Um, so why is that 
why is that point so vital to this podcast? Well, as you can imagine, the, the families of Suzanne Pilly and Arlene Fraser, they've endured years of heartache. Both of them were given an element of closure when the killers were put behind bars, but both families are still waiting for the true closure that comes from having a body to bury. And that is why they want the Scottish government to introduce Suzanne's law. Put simply, it would mean a killer would have to reveal where the body is located if they are to ever get out of jail. The Scottish government has listened to the family's concerns. And in April this year, they introduced a new law, which meant that parole boards have to take into account whether or not a prisoner has revealed the location of a body when that parole board is determining if the prisoner should be released back into the community. But Arlene's family want Holyrood to go one further. They want to ensure that revealing the location of a body is a condition of release. So in effect, it would mean no body, no release. Um, in this case, has there ever been an admission, though, that uh, you know the man in jail knows where anybody might be? It is a bit of a, a strange situation in that all these years on, Nat Fraser maintains his innocence. He still paints himself yeah. as the innocent party in all of this. And he hasn't said anything about where uh, Arlene's body may be. But it's crucial to say that uh, the detectives involved in the case say that they have clear intelligence, which suggests that Nat does know uh, the, the the burial site. Okay, well, um, what's the Scottish government say about the, the cause for this law? Well, they gave us a statement. Um, and in that statement, a Scottish government spokesman said that it was committed to ensuring that victims' rights are at the heart of the justice system. The spokesman made reference to the change in the law that I mentioned a minute ago or so. And uh, he added that to go further and deny parole automatically would raise potential issues of compatibility with the European Convention of Human Rights. And Arlene's family are continuing their, their campaign for change. They're hoping that eventually they might be able to persuade the Scottish government to take that important step further and give them a chance at finally getting the closure that they uh, that they long for yeah and and you mentioned the family there it's important to point out that they're they're fully on board with this podcast series and they've been supporting um your work and you've been supporting their campaign all along yeah that's absolutely right Andy. we've kept them up to speed with all developments and we've asked them for their input at all times it's been really important for us to do that uh, and we're really pleased that they've been uh, not only on board with the, the project, but they've also provided us with uh, very positive feedback to the podcast series. Yeah. What's, what's the what's the response been like? I mean, it's not been out very long. How, how's the response? Uh, the response has been very strong. I think for me, uh, the, the most pleasing part is that uh, we're on episode four at the moment and people are, are getting in touch to say, um, when's episode five? When's the final episode after that? And that's always a, a positive sign. And we know that thousands yeah. of people have listened to the first four episodes uh, and we've had some very positive feedback. And also the, the podcast has reignited a lot of discussion about the Arlene Fraser case. And so we've decided uh, next week to hold a, a Q&A hour so our audience can ask our team about the podcast and how it was made. Bypassing folk like me. When's that going to be happening? Well, uh, it's going to be on Tuesday, so December the 5th, and we're going to do it from 7pm to 8pm. Uh, so anyone wishing to ask a question or follow the questions and answers can go to the Press and Journal website, the homepage, and click on the link, uh, which we'll, we will make quite prominent on Tuesday. So all questions that yeah. come into us will be put in a queue uh, 
uh, and handled by a moderator and we'll answer each question in turn. So people will be able to ask questions both before the hour begins and also during the hour itself. Anyone wishing to take part will have to register for a free account on the Press and Journal website. Dale Haslam, thank you very much. If you want to listen to Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder podcast series, you can find the first four episodes via your usual podcast provider now. Okay, on to the big political stories of the week now. And Hamza Yousaf, who's off to Dubai to talk climate change. Derek Healy has been looking at the trip and to the wider context of energy and politics in Scotland, where Grangemouth's closure as a refinery, um, which is coming down the line, was a big shock last week. Scotland is supposed to be moving away from fossil fuels, but the people arguing the other way are not going silently anytime soon either. This is a pivotal moment, really, for Scotland, the UK and the world, really, as we grapple with the big global issue of the day. So, Derek, I won't ask you to solve the problem, but what can Scotland achieve by Hamza Yousaf flying to Dubai? Well, thank you for not asking me to solve the problem. I appreciate that. Um, I, mean, I think, first of all, it's worth saying this is a big moment for Hamza Yousaf, I think. He's not got the same kind of big international profile that maybe Nicola Sturgeon did, um, not as recognisable in the world stage. This is his sort of debut, his chance to go and speak to world leaders and make his voice heard. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how he does. But um, whilst all that is going on, there are problems brewing back home. Um, mm. So there has been questions raised about um, proposals which are being considered by the Scottish government at the moment to build a gas, a fossil fuel powered gas burning power station in Peterhead next to the one that's already there. Now, according to SEPA, the one that's already there is one of the worst polluters in Scotland over the past five years. So climate campaigners are horrified by this idea and saying, please don't do this, please reject this proposal. The companies who are involved in doing it are promising that carbon capture will be introduced later on, mm. that they're going to do an incredible amount. I think it's 90% plus of emissions would be captured and stored. Um, but climate campaign will suggest that nothing's ever happened on this kind of scale. So it is a big row brewing as Hamza gets ready to fly over to Dubai to have these talks. The the carbon capture which scheme, which we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast, um, in, in essence, what the people behind the schemes think is that this takes the, the harmful emissions out of the air, and I think you know pumps them back underground to to oil wells and places like this that are that are being depleted. And on the other hand, climate com- uh, campaigners, including a lot of green politicians, think well, all it does is lock you into a a future which is still reliant on the burning of fossil fuels and you're you're just you're just burying the problem putting it under the rug i mean who it's difficult to to gauge which is right and which is wrong um but it looks like the initial problem sucking out the bad stuff from the air and keeping people in work is is, is a seductive argument yeah and it's important for for jobs as well as well saying you know these developments that go on create huge amounts of jobs huge amount of wealth um and that's why people are keen if they can to carry on doing this and um you know, we'll obviously hear a lot about net zero targets and this plays into all of this as well. I mean, I think the two sides of the debate are you've got one, which is a kind of oil and gas company saying, well, you know, we can we can carry on doing these different projects. We can store these harmful emissions and we can carry on making lots of money and providing these big opportunities for the country. So that is very appealing in one sense. On the other side, as you say, you have climate campaigners saying, well, wait a minute, this stuff is being buried underground and actually... 
even if you buy into the idea, so you have to first of all buy into the idea that this is going to work, which they say has never been demonstrated globally, that's going to happen to the sort of scale and efficiency that the oil and gas companies say it can, even then, as you say, you're burying the problem. You know, it doesn't just go away. Um, they say that it can leak. There's different different issues with it. So, yeah, you, you've, you've got all these different things playing out at the same time. And I don't think there's a clear answer on it yet. I mean, yeah. Both sides would say there is. But from, from me trying to understand it and reading that, it doesn't seem like there's a clear answer yet. Alistair Clark, you, you, write, you write about this as well and, and, and to do with the, the jobs and, and all that kind of thing. What are the optics like with Hamza Youssef going off to Dubai, do you think? Yeah, so I think the one of the big important things to remember about places like Grangemouth is that it's not just people who live in Grangemouth that this affects. There is a, a ton of people around Scotland who travel there for work. Um, so certainly in Fife, I think the figures are dozens of people who, who live in Fife work at Grangemouth. Um, so, so this is definitely an issue that affects a, a much broader group of people than, than you might assume. Hamza Yusuf going off to Dubai, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the impact that will be. Um, I think obviously when Nicola Sturgeon had quite a big presence at COP26, that made sense because it was in Glasgow. Um, so nobody really um, sort of questioned that or thought about it too much. Um, I guess obviously Hamza Yusuf might get a slightly different reaction um, going to Dubai. Um, but it's quite hard to predict at the moment uh, where that what that'll look like. He's t- he's leaving behind a few problems, as you mentioned out uh, earlier on, Derek. Domestically, there's a lot going on in Parliament as well. But what else can he hope to do with um, other leaders out there? And the UK government are obviously there as the state, the UK state representatives. They've got quite a different attitude when it comes to the future of oil and gas. Um, lots of tensions between the SNP and the Conservatives, and there's, you know, there's even tensions within the SNP about the SNP. So, is Amza Youssef going to go out there and have a, a kind of unified voice about the future of where we should be putting energy? Well, I think in, in terms of the party, you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's going to be far from a unified voice. I mean, there's a lot of people in the kind of Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, Northeast in general who will have very different views to some of these supporters who are living in the central belt, for example. Um, there is far from a united voice on this at the moment. And I think some of the coverage you've seen going into COP28, like you've heard about oil and gas companies who are looking to use it as an, as an opportunity to strike up deals and things like that. I mean, that definitely doesn't help as well. It doesn't help the optics of this. And I think... Mm-hmm. We saw a little bit of COP26 and particularly coming out of COP26, a little bit of kind of scepticism about, you know, you've got all these world leaders flying in for all these big level talks, but what is actually happening? I mean, in the background of this, you've got to remember that Scotland has repeatedly missed its climate targets. Mm. Um, I, I, I think it's basically missed all of them. It may have hit a few now, but I think last time I looked, certainly it missed all of them. So to go out and fly away to the other side of the world to go and have these big conversations when you can't actually meet the targets at home, you're waiting to see whether you're going to um, approve this this plan, which campaigners say is going to lock Scotland into decades of fossil fuel dependency. It's a very tricky situation. So, you know, not just from, as I say, individually him, how is he going to get on with raising his profile globally? It's going to be very interesting to see how he handles those moving parts. Yeah. Who else remembers the glory days when Arnold Schwarzenegger was hailing Scotland's world-beating climate targets under Alex Salmond? 
I don't remember that at all. That sounds like another planet. <laughs> That's bizarre. Feels like a million years ago. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, I'm going to look up that. Well, hands up any listener who also remembers the Terminator um, welcoming Alex Salmon's policy positions. Different times. Moving on, pavement parking bans are coming uh, in across Scotland in December. This law has been years in the making, and it's a contentious talking point. People with limited mobility, anyone pushing a buggy, wheelchair users, they are more than likely used to finding cars parked on pavements blocking the way. The people parking there often argue that there is just no room anywhere else on the road because they're too narrow, emergency vehicles need to get by, all that kind of stuff. Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Dundee, all among those considering how to enforce the rules, then punish the people for breaching them. It was still news to some folk that we've been speaking to. Views are mixed. Reporter Laura Devlin from The Courier pounded the pavements of Dundee to see how people are reacting to the ban plan there. Name's Neil and I'm 72. Right. Neil Dalgleish, yeah. Um, and so, um, have you noticed parking in this area and around Dundee on the pavements? Uh, I've certainly noticed uh, parking in Dundee on the pavements, not specifically this area, but yes, from time to time, very much so. And do you think it's an issue for people walking along the, the pavement to get yeah, past? Yeah, very much so, especially older people if they're on a, you know, in a wheelchair or on uh, one of these wee motorised buggies. My name's Mrs Andrews, I'm 73 years of age and I live in the Balgay area. Um, so I'll just start off by asking, um, have you noticed parking on pavements, not necessarily just in this area, but across Dundee? I would say, because I'm a driver, I don't particularly notice across Dundee, but in this area, I've just walked up Ancrum Drive, and there were numerous cars parked on the pavement. I'm able-bodied, so it wasn't a problem to me. I do think anyone with uh, an issue with walking or in a wheelchair would find it very problematic. David Webster, aged 43. And do you notice the, the parking issue in this area or around Dundee in general? Uh, probably because it's uh, very much a university area. Uh, there's definitely a lot of parking issues around the West End. So it's Derek Biggins. Uh, 70. Do you notice the parking problem in this area and across Dundee as a whole? Yeah, well, definitely here. I mean, because it's an absolute nightmare. Uh, by five o'clock, you have no chance again, mm-hmm. unless you park on the pavement. Have you heard about the ban in Dundee coming into effect? To be honest, I haven't heard about the ban in Dundee coming into effect, but I've certainly heard about the bans in coming into effect in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's a good idea? Yes, yes, very much so. I've read about it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I have to say, sitting with friends, but I haven't openly discussed it. It's not been a topic. Yeah. And do you think it's a good idea to stop cars from parking the I do think it is, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah I've he- heard of the ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would certainly say some of the narrower streets will be affected by it uh, mm-hmm. quite a lot. And do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's an idea that you know, uh, cars should park on pavements and allow people to be walking through them? Uh, I do think it's a good idea, however, as I say, there are areas in Dundee where there aren't options for that to happen, so maybe alternative parking arrangements have to be made for that. Well, it depends on where it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can't get parked here, where do you park? Mm-hmm. Because even up on the main road or that, you're going to have difficulty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as was said before, I mean, when these houses were built, they weren't built for... Mm-hmm. The amount of cars that are here, now. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, no, it's 
it could be a good idea some places, but mm-hmm. no, I mean, different if you've got parking spaces and you park mm-hmm. on the pavement, then, yeah. then I would disagree with that, but mm-hmm. I like this area. Mm-hmm. And I suppose lastly, you can touch upon it, but do you think it's even enforceable when it does come into effect, or do you think it's it's not going to be something that's, that's going to be... Well, to... I think if you get tickets, mm-hmm. there's not a lot you can do about it. I mean, you could... Yeah, it'd be like a parking ticket. Mm-hmm. It's another way of getting money, is it? So, mm-hmm. definitely enforce it. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. In places where you can't park, I don't think it's right. Yeah. I would say it depends on who's going to be enforcing it and uh, it's going to take quite a lot of people uh, driving around constantly, watching out. It's an education issue, educating drivers to to Mm -hmm. tell them that they shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of enforcing it, it depends on what regulations are introduced to to enforce it and what level of fines are are introduced to to force people to, to make payment of fines and so on. But it, it mainly it depends on the workforce. Who's going to do, who's going to drive around? Who's going to be traffic wardens, or who's going to drive around and try and enforce it? Traffic wardens would I would th- think would be the logical way of doing it, because they're going around. I've seen them even in Spade Drive in certain parts of Dundee, out in the, the outskirts of Dundee. So if there's enough of a workforce with traffic traffic wardens, and they can deal with that at the same time as putting out parking tickets, you know, that would be a logical way of doing it. Do you think it's going to be feasible to enforce it? I have absolutely no idea about that. I just wonder. I do, I'm off to Glasgow at the weekend. My daughter lives there. The number of flats is incredible. There is no way they could enforce a ban there. Everybody parks on the pavement. But I do think in an area like this, for example, Charleston Drive, I don't know why cars park on the pavement there when it's such a wide road, white pavements. It's certainly more accessible if you were um, disabled, but I I still don't understand why they do it. Plus, most houses have drives. So you don't think it's going to be feasible in every area in Dundee? There's got to be some sort of leeway? Yeah, well, there's got to be a a solution. Where are they going to put the cars? Uh, There's going to be more damage to cars if they park on pavements because of narrow streets. Alistair, you've written about the pavement parking ban that's coming in and you focused on Dundee like Laura was doing there. Something that was a, a bit of a refrain in the Vox Pops was this concern about, well, it can't be a blanket ban, it has to be some places. And is it possible to enforce this kind of thing if it's not a blanket ban? Yeah, so I think it's, it's really interesting we're talking about this at the same time as we're talking about COP28. You know, there's these big international issues, but this is an issue that really affects people and really impacts people. Um, and there is a wide range of views on it. So uh, to explain the legislation, basically what it allows for is for councils to choose to enforce the ban on pavement parking or not. So some councils um, like Dundee are going to enforce it. And that means they can issue fines of up to £100 for people who um, park on a pavement, who park in front of a drop curb or double park. Some councils, like Fife, have said that they're not currently planning to enforce it, but they're, um, you know, they've not ruled it out. Um, now, the councils can also exempt some streets. So we already know that in Dundee, they, they're planning to exempt a number of streets. And they can do this where um, the pavement is 
um, more than 1.5 metres wide. So there is quite a, f a few pavements in residential areas in Dundee where the pavement is, you know, double or triple the size of a normal pavement because it was designed to allow cars to park on the outside of the kerb. And they can also create an exemption where the road is so narrow that people just parking on the road and not on the pavement would block an emergency vehicle from um, going up the road. Because obviously if you've got um, all these cars suddenly parking on the road and not on the pavement, that, that potentially block, blocks the road and could be quite dangerous. So, you know, the, the ban isn't just an outright ban in saying if anyone parks on the pavement, they can be fined £100. And mm -hmm. um, There is going to be exemptions. There will be some areas where, you know, they, they, they have to sign and say that, you know, parking on the pavement is allowed here. Um, so, yeah, I think it will capture that sort of um, difference in streets and, and how certain streets are designed. Yeah, and that's one of the problems, though, is that people who live in built-up areas where they've got a wheelchair or a buggy and there's narrow streets, nowhere to park. I mean, that's the reason that this ban has been cooked up in the first place. But they might find that because there's nowhere for cars to park, they end up not being enforced there as well, or it's not going to be enforceable. So we might find a lot of the people who this is designed to help will probably find themselves still having to go onto the road to get around cars. Um, it's been a long time in the, in the making this law. Um, is that are problems like this the reason it's taken so long? I mean, it's years. Yeah, so the legislation was passed in 2019. The the powers that will be transferred to councils to allow them to enforce this ban will, will happen, I think it's December the 11th. I think partly the delay, delay is because of COVID, so obviously um, there was a lot of different restrictions put in place um, during the lockdown, um, especially, you know, the, I think the Living Streets Initiative different councils done different things i think one of the, the interesting things about this and, and somebody that laura spoke to mentioned it is that lots of these residential areas were built never for the you know the the idea that so many cars would need would need to park there yeah um, and that's one of the big problems around this legislation is they're legislating to deal with something um, and in areas where they were just never designed for the, the volume of cars that are now needing to park and you know i think people can can justifiably be a bit upset if now you know they're not going to be able to park near their house or near where they go to the shops and the, the alternatives are um you know they're pretty pretty uh, poor mm. so i think one of the things i hear quite a lot from people when it comes to these sorts of restrictions is that they're generally in favor of things that make streets better for pedestrians and for buggies and wheelchairs and things like that but it's got to go hand in hand with better public transport. So, for example, an area where I grew up back in Ayrshire, I believe now you can't get a bus to Glasgow that runs beyond the very early evening. So it's great having these things come in, which make areas much nicer for pedestrians and make it better areas for you know, around residential areas and things as well. But that has got to go hand in hand with, with better transport. And that's something I hear all the time. Same with the low emission zones. People generally in favour of it, but the public transport's got to be there to back up. Just remember as well the the spaces for people kind of stuff during the lockdown. Remember, roads got expanded to allow for more people to walk around. And there was, a, personally, a, a, I found quite a surprising backlash at trying to create more space for people um, 
folk who relied on cars and were finding themselves a bit snarled up on the road, they were they were really opposed to this. Now, after lockdown eased, some councils were were kind of celebrating in in press releases and things like this about how they were going to remove the spaces for people. Like this was a good thing as well. So it it, it kind of gives you a little hint of the attention that's going to come down the line when the, any any move is made to um to to create more space for people and and you know less space for for motorists i think um, one of the things that i always find whenever you talk about these issues is i think drivers sometimes think that politicians secretly just want to ban cars and that whenever something like this is introduced um they they panic or worry that this is you know the first step towards you know banning cars completely um, and I think that's that's sometimes where some of the the reaction to these issues um, comes from because people, you know, worry that politicians are somehow using this as the the first step to just banning cars outright. And and I think you know we could safely say that 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 isn't the government's current intentions and isn't likely to be anytime soon. You also find that um, uh, people seem to just consider themselves either pedestrians or motorists or cyclists, but never people who have a car and a bike and walk. And we're all sort of pitted against each other to share a very small amount of space that we end up just um, all getting each other's way. So it's a difficult one to untangle for sure. That's it for the Stushi this week. We'll be back next Wednesday. Until then, thanks to our guest Dale Haslam, Laura Devlin, Alistair Clark, Derek Healy, producer Morvin McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.